Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan Pittman. I'm uh, the senior pastor here and one of the elders, and we are absolutely thrilled that you are worshiping with us today. Whether you are here in the room or whether you're worshiping with us online, we are grateful that you are with us today. One thing I wanted to let you know, especially for those of you that are at home, we are celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of the sermon today. So if you're at home, you may want to kind of gather your supplies for that. If you are here in the room and your kids just left the, the room and you would like them to participate in Lord's Supper, then at the end of the sermon, whenever we have the time to kind of set up the Lord's Supper and pray through and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, at that point, feel free to leave to get your kids if they are, I forget which age goes where, but the younger ones are down here and the older ones are up there and you can bring them back in the room and they can participate in the Lord's Supper if that's what you and your family would like to do. We are in, uh, I would say the middle, but almost the end of reading through the New Testament as a church family together this year. Uh, we didn't read it starting in Matthew and walk through Revelation. We kind of did it in bits and pieces, but we did a chapter a day, five days a week, and we are coming to the end. In fact, we are um, in a series looking at the book of Revelation called Glory. That series will wind down next Sunday. It'll actually tie into where we're going next, and that is the book of Matthew. So if you've got a worship guide, you can see where we are this coming week. This coming week, we'll be finishing up the last two chapters of Revelation, which is 21 and 22. And then we'll jump over to Matthew, and we'll read verses, sorry, chapters 1 through 3. And uh, as we finish Matthew, that'll be the end of the New Testament. And we'll be starting a new series uh, in the month of January. But all that to say... I think it's very interesting that we are at this hinge point of finishing the book of Revelation and starting Matthew, and here's why. This very week, we'll be reading the final two chapters of Revelation, which is all about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to turn the page, and we're going to go to the front of the New Testament and start in Matthew and read chapters 1 through 3, which is about the birth of Christ. And so this next week, we'll be looking at both of the comings of Jesus the first coming and his birth and his ministry that we see about in the book of Matthew and his second coming, which is mentioned in the book of Revelation. The reason it's interesting this time of year is because this next week, Sunday, the 28th of November, we're starting Advent. And you may be familiar with Advent and you may not, but Advent is simply a word that comes from a Latin word, which means coming. And so it's about celebrating and preparing for the coming of Christ. And so just like before Jesus was born, the people of Israel were preparing for the Messiah's coming, not knowing when he would come. You and I that are followers of Jesus are preparing, or we should be, for his second coming, even though we don't know when he will come. And so we live in this tension similar to what the tension they had of knowing that the Messiah was coming, but yet not yet. So when is he coming? So all that to say... This morning, as you leave the service, you will have an opportunity to pick up this book. Uh, it is a devotional guide. Uh, it says on here, He is Coming, and it's for Advent. And it starts on Sunday, November 28th, and that's why we're giving it to you this week. In this guide, you'll see two different sections. The front section is for anybody of any age to do it. And then the back section is for families with children. Of course, if you don't have children, you can still do the children's activities as well, but all of this is contained in this book, and then there is one little handout that is inserted here that you can use as well. So if you have any questions about this, you can contact the church office this week, 
You can start this whenever you want to, but officially Advent starts next Sunday, the 28th. So hopefully you'll pick that up, and uh, we're asking families to get just one per family unit so that we have enough to go around. All right, so I wanted to set that up knowing that it ties into the fact that we're finishing Revelation and headed into the book of Matthew. If you don't already have your Bible handy, I'd ask you to grab it. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you or don't have it on your phone, you can grab a Bible that's in a chair near you, underneath you, or around you, and you can follow along with us. We'll be in the book of Revelation, which is the last book of New, the New Testament. We'll be specifically in chapter 19. If you don't own a Bible or you need a Bible at the house, feel free to grab the one that you're using this morning. Take that home with you, and that will be a, a gift that we as a church family would love to be able to give to you this morning. So, last week, we looked at chapter 14. Like I said, we're going to look at chapter 19, but before we get there, I want to kind of fill in the blanks a little bit to, to move into chapter 19. Look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. Last week, we talked about how Babylon would fall. It says here in Revelation 14, 8 from last week's message, another angel, a second one, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And what we said last week is that Babylon is a symbol for the worldly systems that lead contrary to God's will and God's plan. And so while it will actually refer to Babylon as the great prostitute, and we see immorality that's listed here, there's actually more than just sexual sin. It's actually an indication of a straying from a relationship with God. That's what the promiscuity of, of Babylon represents. And so in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, last week we saw that the fall of Babylon was prophesied or predicted. And then we're not going to read these chapters right now. Maybe you did this past week, but chapters 15 and 16 of Revelation, you'll see that there are seven bowls of God's wrath. These are plagues that are poured out on the earth. And these are poured out on uh, people who are living contrary to God's plan. It's poured out on the beast and Babylon. And if you're not sure what all of those symbols mean, you can go back and listen to our previous messages or, or maybe study uh, the book of Revelation this week. But we see that God's wrath is poured out on this earth in chapters 15 and 16. And then 17 and 18 describe the very thing that Revelation 14, 8 promised. Revelation 14, 8 said that Babylon would fall. And then we see in chapter 17 and 18 a very elaborate, descriptive uh, explanation of the fall of Babylon or the prostitute that it says at times. This is the idea of spiritual wandering away from God. It's the sense of uh, she, Babylon, is, is the one who would drive us towards idolatry of other gods and other immorality that would not honor and please God. Basically, everything that drives us further from God. There is one interesting verse that I do want us to look at. It's in Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. It describes the beast. I would like for you to look with me at 17, 8 and think about how this verse is slightly in contrast to who God is. In Re Revelation 17, 8, it says about the beast, the one that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. So it's saying the beast is going to be destroyed. But I wanted you to see the three phrases here. In Revelation 17, verse 8, it says that the beast is one who was and is not and is about to rise up. That's very similar to the description of God, right? God is the one who is 
and, and the one who was and the one who is to come. And I love this twist because it says this beast who thinks he is something is actually nothing. It, it says that he is not in existence, he is not. And I know I'm not necessarily making sense out loud, but in my brain it makes sense. The fact that this is the wannabe, he's not God. He's driving against everything about God and God's word points out that he is not really what he thinks he is. And then in chapter 18, at the end of chapter 18, we see that the world grieves the fall of Babylon and then we turn the page to chapter 19. So I, enjoy, I invite you, not enjoy, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. And we'll see that Revelation 19 begins with all of heaven rejoicing for the demise of Babylon. Read with me, along with me in Revelation 19 verses 1 through 5. Here's what he says. After this, after Babylon has fallen, he says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice uh, the word voice here actually could also mean noise. This loud noise or loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who co corrupted the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged on her the blood of his saints. Sorry, of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. In this text, we see a word used three different times, and that word is the word hallelujah. Perhaps you're familiar with that word. Perhaps you even use that word at times. Perhaps you use it about God, and sometimes maybe you use it kind of in a funny way to say, hallelujah, I can't believe my team won the game last night or whatever. But to use hallelujah in that sense is completely to use it contrary to what the word actually means and how it should be used. In this text, in Revelation 19, verses 1 through 5, we see the word hallelujah appear three times. Here's the interesting thing. The word hallelujah we know is a, is a uh, Christian word. We know it's a word that we find in Scripture, but did you know that it's only found four times in the New Testament? Three of them right here in verses 1 through 5, and the fourth time, if you look down at verse 6, it is there. In other words, the word hallelujah is used only four times in the New Testament, and all four are found in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Now, what does hallelujah mean? If you were like me and you were raised in church and you went to kids' church, then you actually learned a song that told you what the word means. Does anybody remember a song that had the word hallelujah in it that had the defini definition of the word hallelujah? Andrew was shaking his head. Maybe I should have Andrew come up here and sing it. We can do it in rounds. Andrew, did y'all sit in chairs when you did it and you popped up? Oh, yeah, see? Perfect. Uh, I tried to sing it last night, and Ashley's like, Alan, don't sing it. Don't sing it. Ashley, I'm fixing this. No, I'm not going to sing it. But the, the song goes like this. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And then y'all say, gee, the Lord, and I say hallelujah, right? That's the back and forth. Those are the only words of that fun song. And, and actually, I talked about it. The competition back then, unfortunately, was not necessarily to praise God, but to outshout and outscream the other group that was singing the other words. 
But the only words in that little kid's songs is hallelujah and praise ye the Lord. The reason is, is because the word hallelujah means praise ye the Lord. Or I don't say ye anymore, praise the Lord. Hallelujah is actually a transliteration of a Hebrew term into the Greek. The front part, halle or hallel is praise. And then the ending, yah, is reference to God, the Lord, Yahweh. So you combine praise, halal, with, and I'm not speaking perfect Hebrew or Greek here, with Yahweh, and you have that ending all shoved together, kind of like a contraction, and the word hallelujah means praise the Lord. So this morning's message I've titled Singing Hallelujah, because what we are challenged with and charged with is to praise the Lord. And so this morning, we're going to talk about why it is and how it is and when it is that we should praise the Lord or sing hallelujah. The whole context is found there at the very beginning of verse 1. The beginning of verse 1 says, after this. Anytime you read a word after this in the scripture, don't start right there. Like turn back a page or two and figure out what happened before the after this so that you have the context, right? To understand, understand scripture, we must seek to understand the larger context. And so in chapters 17 and 18, we see the fall and destruction of Babylon, the, the ones who would lead the world astray from following and serving the one true God. And because of that, after this, there is great shouting and celebration and a worship service in heaven because of the fall of Babylon. So here's the deal. One of the aspects that we have with the book of Revelation is to look into the future, if you will, by the inspiration of God's word about how the world will come to an end. And so this victory party in heaven, this celebrating the fall of Babylon, it is factual. It will take place. It will happen. And victory has been won. But for those of us on this earth, we have not realized that victory completely. Is there still evil around us? Absolutely, yes. Is there still the influence of sin around us? Absolutely, yes. While it is true that Babylon is defeated, we have not experienced it quite fully yet. So I believe part of why this is recorded is for us to be able to look into the future, if you will, not because we're special, but because God has revealed it to us, to look into the future and see that the, while the final victory has not yet happened, we can and we should and we must live in that victory, anticipating that coming day. So whenever we think about the advent, the coming of Christ, part of him coming again means that this dusty old world will be obliterated and, and it will be no more and everything will at that point truly completely celebrate God for all that he is in the meantime we're called to attempt to celebrate that now looking forward to that coming day so this morning I have three points which most pastors will have and each one of them have to do with the word hallelujah because it has to do with praising the Lord. And so I want you to see on the sermon notes, the first one says this, praise the Lord for who he is. For who he is. Look in verse 1. We see in the rest of this chapter who the Lord is, but specifically I want us to look at what we see in verse 1. It says praise the Lord or hallelujah. Why? Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. 
So the starting point for our worship of God is who he is. It's not about what we can give. It's not about what we want. Not about what we need. Everything in our lives should be about the glory of God. So we praise the Lord for who he is. And in verse 1, we see three aspects of praising him and who he is. If we're not careful, we can make the celebration of God or the worship of God all about our personal salvation, our personal deliverance. And while that's a great thing, there is so much more than to make God about me. We're to celebrate God for who he is and not just what he does for us individually. So in this passage, we see the great scope of all that God is. Let's look at each of these three character traits in this verse. The first one says salvation. It says, praise the Lord for his salvation. Have you stopped to think about what the word salvation means? Have you thought about why that word is used so often in Scripture? To have salvation means to be saved from something, right? To have salvation means to be saved from something to something else. Scripture is very clear from the very beginning all the way to the very end that every single one of us as humans, while we are created in the image of God to bring him glory, to bring him honor, to worship him, to be in relationship with him, every single one of us is a sinner. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Scripture is clear. There's only been one who was not a sinner, and that's Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Every single one of us is a sinner. And so if we do nothing about it, which we can't do anything about it, but if we don't respond and do anything about it, then we will experience the full wrath of God. The descriptions that we read in chapter 17 and 18 of the, the fall of Babylon would be the same things that would describe what would take place in our lives. To be a sinner and to not be forgiven of that sin or not do something about that sin means that we are eternally forever separated from God. But the good news is that God provides a way out. He brings deliverance. He brings salvation. And that salvation is found in the one Jesus Christ. We've sung about it this morning, right? We've talked about how Jesus died on the cross for our sins, how he was raised on the third day, that there is no other hope outside of the name of Jesus. All of us are sinners. All of us are hopeless without one who brings us salvation. And the one who brings us salvation is the one who, very definition of his character, is salvation and deliverance. And in this scenario, in heaven, they're not just looking at individuals who are saved from their sin and saved from the wrath of sin. It's actually looking at the holistic view because Babylon has been destroyed. And so God brings salvation from this worldly way of doing things so that his glory can be extended through the rescue of his people. If we're not careful, we will make salvation all about me all about you but what this verse says is that salvation belongs to the lord and salvation is because of him and salvation is in his name and salvation is completely and utterly his work and not ours so we're to praise the lord for who he is he is salvation we also see in this verse he is glory so while salvation benefits us yes 
Salvation is actually for his glory. Why does God win this battle against Babylon? Because he is holy and he is righteous and he is true and he is perfect and nothing nor no one can thwart his plans, including Babylon the Great. And in and, and, and all of the work that he does is to bring glory and honor and recognition to himself because he is sovereign, he is in charge, he is the Lord, he is the creator and sustainer of everything in life. And so the fact that his is the glory means that his glory is on full display through his work. And specifically, as we look at this chapter in Revelation, his glory was on full display. Uh, uh, display in his final and decisive victory over Babylon and the beast. So, the salvation that God brings to you in your life, if you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, should cause you to reflect on who he is and to bring him glory. See, I can't look at myself and go, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm special, I've got it all together. No, the fact that I'm saved is all because of what God has done, and therefore my life should bring glory and honor to him. No one and nothing else is worthy of our praise except for God himself. So he is glory. And then in verse, uh, uh, the third one that we see here is that power belongs to our God. We see in the book of Revelation, we see it through all, uh, throughout all of Scripture, but here in the book of Revelation, we see the power of God on display as he brings salvation or deliverance for his people in the victory over Babylon, which brings him glory, which displays his power and his strength. We worship a sovereign God who is in charge of everything. He has full power, and therefore, he is to be worshiped. Now, we, we see in verse 1 that salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. That is, even though it doesn't say it, that is in contrast to the things that belong to Babylon and the things of Satan. Because Babylon thought she was powerful. Babylon thought she brought salvation. Babylon thought she deserved glory, but none of those are true. Because you see, instead of salvation and life, Babylon brings destruction and death. To follow the ways of God, to trust in Jesus as your Savior, brings life and salvation. To follow things contrary to God's will and God's plan brings destruction and death and separation from God. So instead of bringing uh, salvation like God, the Babylon brings death. The next thing, instead of glorifying God, Babylon seeks to glorify herself. Instead of having power, she steals it from others and uses it for her evil gain. And so the victory over Babylon is very, very important for us to see who God is. Now, you may be wondering, okay, how does that apply to my life today? Like, what do I do with the very fact that you said that salvation, glory, and power belong to God, and I should praise God because of that? How does that apply to me? And here's the deal. All of us, we have a decision to make. Who will we worship? Or it could be, what will we worship? You see, we have a choice before us. Will we worship the one true God who, who has salvation, who has power, who has glory, or are we going to worship someone or something else that falls short of those things? Babylon wants us to worship a false or a fake God. 
at times the things that we have as idols in our life may appear to be neutral. They may appear to not be all that evil. At, at times, idols that we worship may look okay on the surface, but if it distracts us from following the one true God, then it's not a neutral thing at all. Here's some things that Babylon wants us to worship. And perhaps you find yourself trying to worship these things. Power, money, sex, fame, sports, entertainment, politics, aspirations you may have, anything that's self-centered. If we're not careful, we begin to worship other things and have other idols instead of the one true God. The fact that God destroys Babylon shows that Everything else is false and fake, and therefore we have a decision to make. Will we worship the one true God, or will we worship something that's a false imitation of him? So, in this passage of Revelation, we see three different things I want to identify for why we praise God. The first one is that we praise him for who he is. The second one says, praise the Lord who will put things right. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says that his salvation and glory and power belong to him because of these things. It says, for, in verse 2, his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute. She has corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And then verse 3, once more, it's like, an, it's like an encore. Like we worshiped hallelujah once before, but now we do it again. Hallelujah, the smoke from her, Babylon, goes up forever and ever. So we see in verses 2 and 3 that the whole reason for this party, the whole reason for this worship se ser, uh, session in heaven is to praise God for his destruction of Babylon. I want us to kind of walk through line by line, phrase by phrase, and figure out what it means to say that God brings judgment, what it means that God will put things right. We see, first of all, in verse 2, that his judgments are true and just. As I read that, I thought of a couple of examples in life that, that we struggle with judgments of certain people. The first one is kind of lighthearted. It's a football game. Have you ever watched a football game? You know that I have. And as I watch a game, sometimes they have instant replay, right? And they watch the, the video and they try to decide which way the play should go. Have you ever noticed, regardless of what team you're cheering for, the referees are always looking to cheat your team? They always make calls that are against your team. Doesn't matter who you're cheering for. That's just how it goes, right? We question the judgment of the officials. We think their judgment is not true, nor is it just, right? And then on a bigger scale, something even more important that's not lighthearted at all, and we saw it happen again this week, and that is high-profile court cases that are determined. And whether a judgment of guilty or, or innocent comes out, there are people that divide over thinking whether or not justice truly was served. So I'm not going to debate whether justice was served this week or not, but I am going to say that we at times will try to see that, hey, this judgment is not right, it's not fair, it's not true, it's not just. But with God, it's completely different than those two circumstances I just described. Because every time God makes a judgment on something, it's right, it's true, it's just, it's the correct answer. The reason we know that is because God's judgment flows out from who he is. He is holy, he is righteous, he is perfect, and therefore all of his judgments are as well. The reason why John is able to record that God's judgment is true and just. 
is because every judgment God makes comes out of his character. And his character and his actions always align. And because his character and his actions always align, that means every situation is right and true and just, even when we don't understand how it could be. The second phrase that talks about his judgment and making things right, it says that he has judged the great prostitute. Again, I've used that word a few times. Those of you with younger kids in the room may have a conversation that's interesting when you get home tonight. But the, the, that word is less about how you and I would think of that word and not being literal, although that sin is committed. The larger issue is the idea of wandering out of a faithful relationship with God into something that's false and fake. And so Babylon's job or, or, or process in life or, or you could say the prostitute's passion in life is to see all people everywhere worship the beast. The prostitute is destroyed, Babylon is destroyed because she desires that all people everywhere would worship the beast. When in reality, we see who God is and God makes it clear that his agenda is to make sure or to encourage or to see all people everywhere, everywhere worship him. So that's why the beast is destroyed, because she is trying to drive people further from the one true God. Now let's look down at another phrase that we'll see here. It says that she is destroyed because, in verse 2, she corrupted the earth with her immorality. To corrupt means to lead away, to destroy, to seduce. So she must be judged because she's driving others from worshiping God. That's why her judgment comes. Side note, immorality that we see in that phrase, she corrupted the earth with her immorality, is actually the same root word as the word prostitute. So it just comes over and over again. It's about worshiping of false gods, worshiping of idols. The next phrase that we see at the end of verse 2 is that, that God has avenged on her, on Babylon, the blood of his servants. Think for a minute about what avenge means. I know some of you, maybe you like uh, uh, movies, and when you hear the word avenge, you automatically think of the Avengers. I don't know anything about the Avengers other than they're superheroes or whatever. But let's let, think for just a minute about what avenge means. Avenge means to pay back for a harm that has been done. But in this scenario, avenge means to pay back a harm that was originally unjustified. A harm that came that was not right, was not true, was not just. And so God comes back in and he makes things right again. He brings retribution because of a harm that was done that was an unjustified harm. So I want you to look at verse 2 for a second. It begins by saying that God's judgments are true and just. And we said that that is who God is. And it finishes by talking about how he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. If you were to go to the Greek for the word just at the beginning of verse 2, if you were to go to the Greek for the word avenged at the end of verse 2, those two words come from the same root word in the Greek. I'm not going to necessarily pronounce it correctly. It's spelled like Nike except for with a D. And it's the word I say, DK, DK. The same root word for just DK is the same root word for avenge. And so we know that when God brings, uh, avenges the blood of his servants, it means that he does it in a just, correct, true kind of way. 
So as you read the end of verse 2, do not think of God as being some crazed lunatic going on a revenge course to, to bring destruction in a hateful kind of way. Rather, he brings vengeance in a correct, true, just, righteous kind of way. It's been a while since I've seen this movie. It, it's a little over the top. In fact, it's a lot over the top. Maybe you're familiar with the, the, the movie John Wick. Do not think of someone like that character with God because that guy goes crazy trying to seek revenge on those who have done something to his dog. But the reality is God does not go crazy. He is not unrestrained. He is vengeful. He is wrathful against sin, against him. But it's always a just judgment. It's always just and true. In this scenario, it says that he brings judgment on her for the blood of his servants. Many, many of our brothers and sisters over the years and most definitely now have been martyred for their faith. They have been killed for their faith. They have been beheaded for their faith. They have been tortured for their faith. And when that takes place, that is definitely not just. It's not true. It's not righteous. And so God says that he will bring vengeance on those who have martyred and murdered his people. And then verse 3. It's like they do one more celebration. And listen to it. It says they're celebrating, praise the Lord, because the smoke from Babylon goes up forever and ever and ever. In other words, she is burning to the ground and that smoke keeps rising. I want us to be really careful with what we do with this verse. As Christians, if we're not careful, we can celebrate the wrong thing. What I want to say is we as followers of Jesus should never delight in the judgment of sinners. We should never delight that someone ends up in a place called hell because short of God's grace in our life, that would have been us as well. So the victory party in heaven in Revelation chapter 19 is not about a bunch of people that are burning in a place called hell and so let's celebrate. No, it's a party because the evil systems that are in place that drive people away from God is destroyed. So our, judgment, uh, sorry, our, our delight should not be in the destruction of individual sinners. Rather, our delight should be in the fact that God's judgment comes over evil powers that lead sinners astray. One way that we can exhibit that in our life is all too often we can begin to argue with and fight against a sinner when our fight should be reserved. Yes, conversations can be had. Yes, debate can be had. Yes, we should proclaim God's truth, but the fight doesn't really belong against the sinner. The fight belongs against Satan and those that would lead that sinner astray. Let me give you some context. Go with me to Ephesians 
chapter 6. It's going to be, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter 4. I got ahead of myself. Ephesians 4, it'll be on the screen. Ephesians 4, 12. Here's what Paul says when he talks about putting the full armor of God on us. I'm, I'm taking one verse out of, of that section. Maybe you want to go back and read it later, but here's what he says. Remember, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As we stand up for the truth of God's word, as we stand up for righteousness of God being declared, as we stand up against a culture that wants us to uh, to, to do away with God's word as we fight the good fight make sure that we're fighting against the proper place and not against individual people that then will actually burn bridges with them and we'll never be able to share the gospel with them so how do we take this thought to praise the Lord who will put things right and put it into application in our lives here's a few thoughts first we want to acknowledge that our world is full of injustice and because it's full of injustice, we should, as followers of Jesus, fight in a healthy kind of way to see that things are made right. But as we do that, make sure that you're standing for true biblical justice. Because if we're not careful, everything can be labeled a justice issue when not everything really is. Make sure as we fight for justice, it is for biblical justice. You and I see when injustice are, is committed. We see when Followers of Jesus are, are martyred or are persecuted, and we want to do something about it. And so it's fair, it's right, it's good for us to pray and to fight against that kind of injustice. But as we do that, make sure, number two, that we point others to the gospel. Because the gospel is the only way to be on the right side of justice. See, God is right and pure and true and just. So that means if I am a sinner who, have not, who has not experienced the forgiveness of my sins through the power and the work of Jesus Christ, then the just judgment is that I would spend an eternity in a place called hell. So the only way we can get on the right side of the justice is to experience salvation that comes through Jesus, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so if we want to bring justice in people's lives, then mainly we need to be pointing them to the gospel so that they can experience the ultimate justice that is found in the forgiveness of their sins through the finished work of Jesus Christ. The third aspect of this application, as I've already described, don't fight against people, but fight against Satan who is deceiving them. And then the last application is, while justice is not being served in a godly fashion here on this earth right now, we can take confidence that one day God will put all things right, so continue to trust in him. Perhaps you have said this. Perhaps you've seen others say this. Have you seen when a tragedy happens and sometimes God's believers, uh, followers will say, come Lord Jesus, come. Do you know why we say that? Part of it is we want to get out of this world that's full of sin, and part of that is we acknowledge that only with the coming of Jesus will justice fully be served. And so this day of the judgment of, of Babylon and the evil forces that would lead us astray from God is coming. It hasn't come yet, but we can look forward that that day is coming. So in this text, in Revelation 19, there's three different things I want us to see about praising the Lord. The first one, praise the Lord for who he is. The second one, praise the Lord for he will make all things right. And then quickly, let's look at the last one. Praise the Lord with all of God's people. Verses 4 and 5. 
kind of a flashback as you see the word elders and creatures here what we looked at over the last few weeks is that more than likely these are angelic beings and more than likely they represent all of God's people and all of creation and so here it is it says in verse 4 that the 24 elders and the four living creatures these angelic beings saw everything that took place they saw God's people worshiping him so they fell down and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they also said amen hallelujah and then from the throne came a voice from some angel there at the, at the throne. It could be an angel, it could be a living creature, it could be an elder. But here's what the voice says. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who, are fear, sorry, you who fear him, small and great. So in this verse, we see that we're to praise the Lord with all of God's people, with all of creation. We are commanded to do that very thing. I love the fact that in verse 4, it says that these angels saw what took place and they said, we agree. That's what amen means. Amen says, we agree. This is true. Let it be. Let's sing hallelujah. Amen. Let me just kind of give you a little bit of permission here. Anytime, whether it's me preaching or someone else, or whether you're in your hope group, or whether you're in another setting, if you hear God's word proclaimed, don't feel like you have to sit there silently. Be willing to agree literally with your voice and say, that's right, amen, let it be. I can guarantee you the one who's speaking can be encouraged by that. Otherwise, you're going, okay, if I said anything that's gospel-centered, it's nice to kind of get feedback from y'all occasionally. Amen. amen. There we go. Thank you, Scott. I didn't even pay him to do that. But in all seriousness, the responsiveness of these angelic beings about the worship of God from his saints was to shout the praises as well and say, amen and amen, we agree with you. And then this voice comes out and gives this command to go out, all you who are his servants, all of you that are followers of Jesus, Go and praise our God, all you. It's a corporate thing. It's not an individualized thing. It's let's do this together. So I want to encourage you, our church family, let us worship the Lord with each other, with all of God's people. Let's think real quickly about what worship is. Worship is not just singing. Worship is not just something we do individual and in a private setting. Worship, rather, while it includes those things, is all of life that's lived to bring glory and honor and praise to God. But obviously, one big aspect of worshiping the Lord is corporate worship. That's why we come together on Sunday mornings, right, at 10 o'clock, so we can worship together with our church family so that we can do this very thing that we see in verse 5, where all of his servants, those who fear him, both small and great, are praising our God. So let me say this, and hear me carefully as I say this. Those of you that are worshiping from home right now, some of you have sick kids, some of you have things going on with COVID, some of you have concerns, all of those things. If that is you, I understand it and I get it, but here's the deal. Whenever the time is right, preferably sooner than later, we want you back in here in this room so we can worship together as a church family. And yet at the same time, we're grateful for this technology that allows our church family to worship. There's one family that's here today, they had contacted me and said, hey, it's going to be a little bit while we're out because of the COVID numbers, they're back today. Those kinds of things happen on a regular basis. We have folks that are dealing with maybe cancer diagnosis, and they're just being a little extra cautious, but we desire to see you when the time is right because we need to come together corporately all in one room so that we can worship the Lord together. 
So, I wanted to read a passage, and um, I think um, all of it should be on the screen, big enough for you to be able to read. If not, then I, just kind of follow along with me, I'll read it. But this quote is from a sermon from about 25 or 30 years ago from John Piper. And I, I don't know the full context of the sermon. I don't know he could have been preaching this same text, but it ties perfectly, if you will, in with this concept of worshiping the Lord together and what we've read about in Revelation 19. Here's what John says. Piper says, corporate worship is the declaration in the midst of Babylon that we will not be drawn into her harlotries because we have found in God the satisfaction of our souls. And therefore, worship is an open declaration to all the powers of heaven and to all of Babylon that we will not prostitute our minds or our hearts or our bodies to the allurements of the world. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive to Babylonian ways. And we will celebrate with all our might the awesome truth that we are free from that which will be destroyed. I absolutely love that phrase. I love that statement because everything we've looked at here in Revelation 19 points to the celebration that's coming because Babylon will be destroyed. And yet we still live in this earth, which is still influenced by the power of Babylon. But in the midst of it all, we're to corporately gather to worship the one true God to say that regardless of what's going on around us, we will stand firm with the power and strength of the Holy Spirit to live for God and to worship him exclusively. So... What is the application point here? How are we going to live out this idea of worshiping with all of God's people? I'm going to take us back to the beginning of verse 1. He says, after I heard this, I'm sorry, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, shouting, proclaiming, screaming. In this verse, in verse 1, we see that the worship in heaven is unreserved. We see that the worship in heaven is like me, it's loud. We see that the worship in heaven is enthusiastic for our God. So I want to ask you that when it comes to our times of worship, corporately, don't be afraid to be unreserved. That when we worship as a church family, let's be willing to sing loudly and proudly. Let us be willing to sing with a joyful noise because that's all I've got. Is noise, not pretty noise. But here, amen, that's right. But here we see, right here we see, that when we come together to worship corporately, it's not about a show. It's not about, let's see who can sing the loudest so that it's noticed and we go, oh, that person must really love Jesus. No, it's a sincere, genuine love for God and love for his people that allows us to proclaim with enthusiasm the greatness of our God. So to praise with all of God's people means we worship unreservedly. But also to worship unreservedly means that we should do that in our lives as well. So that with our words and our actions, they should be loud, enthusiastic forms of worship of God. So here in Revelation 19, three different times in verses 1 through 5 and then 1 in verse 6, we see that we are to praise the Lord. We're to sing hallelujah. My question to us is, will you commit to sing God's praises this week? One way that we can and should 
celebrate the Lord for all that he has done is by remembering what he has done. In the celebration of the Lord's Supper, it's a celebration of our salvation that comes through what Jesus has done and not what we have done. In the celebration of the Lord's Supper, it's a remembrance of all that he has done for us, which causes us to see that he has salvation, he has glory, and he has power. Lord's Supper is designed for anyone, whether you're a member of our church or not, anyone that has trusted in Jesus for salvation, has followed up with baptism, this Lord's Supper is for you. And so in just a moment, I will lead us in prayer, and after that prayer, if you have a kid that you would like, that is a follower of Jesus, that you would like to participate in Lord's Supper, then you can kind of dismiss yourself and quickly get them and come back in, you'll still have time to receive it. And then we'll have a time of reflection as some music is playing, and then as you feel ready, you can go to any of these four stations. There's two in the front and two in the back. We have individualized things that have the juice and the bread in it. At this table right here and that table back there, we have unle- uh, not unleavened bread, sorry, gluten-free. That's what I'm trying to say, gluten-free bread. If you need some gluten-free bread, go to one of those two stations. But as we do this, let us consider the truth of God's word, of everything that we've read thus far and then this passage out of 1 Corinthians. I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. These are the words of Paul talking about the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So even as you read this, you see that part of Advent, considering that Jesus has come and he is coming, that that also goes into the Lord's Supper. We remember what Christ did for us on the cross and in his resurrection, and we look forward in anticipation when he's coming to take his people again.